Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 411. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show. Tell you what's coming in today, show. First up is, we've got two actual main fictions. The first one is Beneath the Willow Branches, Beyond the Reach of Time by Carolyn M. Joachim, which was originally in Interzone. Then we have a little interview I carried out with Matt Novak, and it's all about the Hilton Hotel Company. Put the hotel on the moon, would you believe? (laughs) Then the other main fiction is Relic by Trisha Glock. That is all coming in today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. Don't forget, this show is sponsored by Octagon Technology. 20 years in the IT business, trying to help you out with your little tweaks and dilemmas. Octagon Technology is now able to supply hosted exchange servers for solicitors and legal firms in the UK who need to use the Criminal Justice Secure email. Big thank you to Clive and Diane. Don't forget, Jeremy is looking for an assistant editor there as well. I will put a link on to pop over to Jeremy's site. So if you want to kind of read read up what Jeremy's after, just to kind of help him out with Starship Sova, you know, and getting involved, to be quite honest, and, you know, Taking some of the workload off Jeremy, but just getting involved and trying to make a difference on Starships Over. I'll put a link on Starships Over so you can come over there and then just pop over to Jeremy's and, and apply, apply for the position. Yes, that would be very nice. That sounds very posh and nice. So, there we go. Please do that. So, first up is the, the main fiction, or one of the main fictions, and it is by Caroline M. Yoakum. Caroline lives in Seattle and loves cold, cloudy weather. <laughs> I've read this before and it's just like, eh, come on, man. She is the author of dozens of short stories appearing in fantasy and science fiction, Clark's World, Asimov's and Lightspeed. Her debut short story collection, Seven Wonders of a Once and Future World and Other Stories, is coming out from Fairwood Press in 2016. Oh, how exciting. But more about Caroline check out her website and there's a link on there if you want to go out and have a look and say hello to Caroline. This story is narrated by Catherine Inskip. Catherine wears galaxies for a living and builds worlds in her spare time. She's addicted to chocolate and Japanese logic puzzles and has a fantastic voice. Both these narrations today are just top quality. Chuffed to bits. So, the Starship Sofa is very proud to present. Beneath the Willow Branches Beyond the Reach of Time by Caroline M. Yokim. It was the most difficult surgery Takeshi Saito had ever performed. Not because of the operation itself, 
but because his wife, Laura, was the one on the surgical table with her skull cut open. He wanted to be in the room with her and hold her hand while he performed the operation. Foolishness. Laura wasn't here. Her mind was stuck in the past. Extracting the memory unit from her brain was his last hope for finding her. He activated his surgical gloves and a pair of robotic arms lowered. He stroked the side of Laura's head with a robotic finger, and the gloves sent sensory feedback to his fingertips. Around the incision, her hair was shaved to stubble, leaving tiny bumps like grail. He'd taken as little of her hair as possible, sterilizing the rest and pinning it down in tight braids. With a tap of his foot, he swapped the robotic arms for a pair four orders of magnitude smaller. The image projected on the wall in front of him changed scale accordingly, displaying a small section of exposed cortex at high magnification. There were 57 marker nodes embedded in the neural tissue. At this scale, they looked like giant silver sperm swimming through the bare winter branches of neuronal trees. The memory unit itself wasn't visible. It was displaced along the z-axis of time, outside the plane of all possible timelines. Takeshi reached for the first node, careful not to disturb the surrounding cells. As he pulled the node free, its tail tangled on a dendrite and the delicate neuronal branch snapped. The destruction of one or even hundreds of neurons was a surgically acceptable loss, but Takeshi hated to make mistakes, especially with Laura. He dropped the node into the collection tray and moved on to the next one. After every tenth node, the computer prompted him to take a break, but he extracted all 57 nodes without rest. Laura was disconnected from her memory unit. The scale on the vid wall reverted to one-to-one. -one. Laura looked so vulnerable with her skull open. Had he looked so fragile when he was having his memory unit installed? Off in Z time, his memory unit recorded this moment, keeping his memories safe so he could access them if he found a way to go back in time and rescue Laura. Takeshi gestured with his foot, and his fingertips tingled, a false sensation he'd programmed into the gloves as a signal that the robotic arms were moving through time as well as space. He scooped up the marker nodes and traced the wires past the point where they disappeared. Once he had a fix on the memory unit, he pulled bringing it back into the timeline. On the wall display, it looked as though the unit had appeared out of nowhere, a nondescript metal case with a bundle of wires trailing from one corner. He shut off the Z-manipulator. When his fingertips stopped tingling, he gently closed Laura's skull and stitched her scalp together. He prayed that the memory unit wasn't damaged, that it had recorded something useful. He prayed for answers, because it hurt too much to pray for Laura. Takeshi delivered the memory unit to his research assistant, Fujiko, and went to Laura's recovery room. I found you some new artwork. He could not help but speak, even though he knew Laura didn't hear him. I've been saving it for after the surgery. He reprogrammed the walls to display a scene from Green Willow. Two willow trees with their trunks and branches twined together, done in the style of Utagawa Hiroshige's 19th century paintings. Green Willow was Laura's favourite story. Her mother read it to her as a bedtime story after her father died. 
It had been a difficult time for her, growing up on an American army base alone with her Japanese mother. Takeshi told her the story almost every time he came to visit, in hopes that the familiar tale would comfort her. Once there was a samurai who loved all of nature, and especially loved trees, he began. He told Laura how the samurai was sent on a mission for his lord, and that on the way he met a beautiful woman whose house had a willow tree in the yard. The woman was green willow, and the samurai fell in love with her. He abandoned his mission and took her to a distant city outside the realm of his lord. They lived there happily until one summer's night when green willow cried out in pain. My willow, they're cutting it, she said. I'm sorry I took you from your duty, but I love you. Before the samurai could speak, his green willow had disappeared, leaving only a bundle of willow branches. The samurai returned to the house where he had found green willow, and the servants of the samurai's lord had cut down her willow tree. The samurai knelt beside the stump and prayed, and all through the fall and winter he waited. In the spring, a sapling grew from the willow stump. When the wind blew at night, the leaves whispered, Green willow. The samurai tended her tree for all his life, then lay down beside it to die, and where his bones rested in the earth, a new sapling grew. His tree grew tall and strong beside hers, Takeshi said, so close that their branches and trunks twined together. And two became one. Takeshi held Laura's hand and stared at the willows on her wall. The trees evoked bittersweet memories of the times they'd walked together along the canal in Gion. Willow trees lined both sides of the canal, their trunks gnarled and thick, a striking contrast to the delicate branches that rustled in the wind. They'd gone walking there a couple of weeks before her accident. She had talked him into dancing in the middle of the path. As though they were love struck teenagers instead of stodgy old professors. Back then, he'd never noticed her crow's feet or the tiny strands of silver in her hair. He noticed now that the nurses had undone her braids, leaving her hair sprayed out in all directions over her pillow, black on white, like an ink blot. He ran his fingers between the strands, arranging it carefully to conceal the areas that were shaved. Don't worry, love, he told her, kissing her forehead. I'll find you. Takeshi scrolled through Fujiko's analysis of the memory unit. Laura was stuck in a loop. Her program was supposed to send her back three weeks, Fujiko said. But what Laura built isn't really a time machine at all. It's more like a mirror that reverses the direction of her consciousness. Laura lived those three weeks moving forwards in time. And now she experiences those same events backwards, then forwards, backwards, then forwards, always looping and always the same. Takeshi traced the lines on his palm, as if by doing so he could somehow change the lines of time. A loop like that shouldn't be possible. Changing the past generates an alternate timeline. Fujiko shrugged. Maybe reversing the direction of our awareness doesn't constitute a change. I have to save her. I'll go back and destroy the machine before she uses it. It was the only option left. You can't, Fujiko said. She paced along the back wall of his office, too agitated to stand still. Even if you sent your consciousness back, how would you make changes? 
The past is fixed. You can't save her. Don't you see why you can't? Takeshi shook his head. I can pull things out of the timeline, along the z-axis. When I'm far enough back, I'll tear the machine apart. I'll pull every single piece of it out of existence if I have to. Without the time machine, Laura won't go backwards, so she won't get stuck in a loop. The changes will split off alternate timelines where she'll be saved. His voice trailed off as he thought about all the things he needed to do to prepare. The cognitive data on Laura's memory unit degrades with every cycle, Fujiko said, staring at the floor. I wasn't going to tell you because there isn't anything we can do about it. She could be aging and getting senile, or she might be going crazy. It doesn't matter. What happened to Laura will happen to you too, Fujiko insisted. People aren't meant to go backwards. Takeshi folded his arms across his chest. It doesn't matter. Fujiko lifted her gaze to meet his. You can't work the machine by yourself and I won't send you. Takeshi smiled sadly. He knew this was a terrible thing to ask of Fujiko, but he had no other choice. No one else knew the equipment as well as she did. He had to make her understand. My consciousness is in the present, but my heart is in the past. With Laura, would you really keep us apart? But you'll be stuck back there, Fujiko said, looping through time. No, Takeshi answered. We'll remove the second part of the program. I only need to go backwards to save her. The cold metal of the table pressed into Takeshi's back as he waited for the flip. The last thing he'd done before coming to the lab was to visit Laura. He'd held her hand and told her stories, his voice dry and soft, like the rustling of leaves in the wind. Saying the end was the closest he could manage to saying goodbye. It wasn't really goodbye anyway. He would see her soon, moving backwards. Time manipulation in progress, marched around the periphery of the room, written in red at the top of the wall. His heart rate sped up. Fujiko watched him via a video recorder in the ceiling. Any time up until the flip, he could call it off. All he had to do was cross his arms in an X above his head, and she would abort. He lifted his arm slightly, then set it back down. There was no reason to stall. He was as ready now as he would ever be. The red light shut off, plunging him into darkness. He could still signal for Jiko. The recorder on the ceiling picked up infrared. Had the flip happened? He didn't feel any different. Perhaps the change was subtle. Maybe he wouldn't become aware that he was moving backwards until he got some sort of environmental cue. Pressure built in his head. As though his brain was a washcloth being wrung out over the sink, his chest rose and fell, but the rhythm was off. The inhalations were too long, the exhalations too quick. He tried to take a deep breath, but nothing changed. He'd lost agency. There was no way to shut his eyes against the darkness, no way to swallow hard, no way to slow his heartbeat. He could count. Numbers didn't change. And he could still think, one, two, three. He tried not to notice the body that was no longer his. Four, five. He felt the cool metal table pressing up against his back. The sensation was constant, the same uncomfortable stiffness both forward and back. Six, 
seven, eight, nine, ten. His mind was intact. This was how things were supposed to be. The red lights came on, flashing their text so bright it should have made his dark adapted eyes squint, but didn't. Time manipulation in progress. Scrolled along the top edge of the wall. Takeshi tried to remember which direction the text had moved, but he hadn't been paying attention. Or had his memory unit failed? Without the memory unit, he would lose the future as time undid the connections in his brain. He tried to close his eyes and failed. His arm lifted slightly. The sudden motion caught him by surprise. He had to think. All he had was thought. What would be a test of the memory unit? He had to remember something that had happened right before the flip. His arm. He moved his arm. He remembered the event happening twice. Once where he moved the arm, and once where the arm moved on its own. Once forward, once backwards. The memory unit was functioning. It was okay. He was okay. Takeshi had made an effort to lay down slowly. He had paused between each motion. He remembered being frustrated at the delay, impatient. He'd been excited, and his body had wanted to rush. Now, in reverse, he felt the rush he had wanted before. Each motion was foreign to him, and his mind struggled to pass the sensations into meaningful actions. Laying down in reverse was different than sitting up. The motion was wrong, quick, as though his muscles were strung too tight. He relabeled his new actions: unlaying, unsitting, unwalking. The toes of his left foot reached back to the ground behind him, and his weight rolled onto his heel. His right foot lifted and swung behind him, toes to heels, backwards, unable to turn his head and see where he was going. His body carried him through the doorway of the time manipulation room and into the hall. He felt like he might collide with a wall at any moment. At the end of the hallway, Fujiko hurtled towards him. She was looking the other way. At the last moment, she twirled to face him. Yes, yes, yes. She inhaled the words, swallowed them. Then their eyes met for a moment, and everything was still. He felt connected to the world. He opened his mouth to speak, but nothing happened. His illusion of agency was lost once more, and all too soon he was moving backwards, trudging into the past one step at a time. How could he have condemned himself to this? He should have crossed his arms over his head before the flip. He should have crossed them then because he couldn't control them now. Six hours after the flip, Takeshi was in the bathroom of his apartment, reabsorbing his own piss. The stream came up out of the bowl. Separating neatly from the rest of the water before making its way back up into his kidneys, he felt the urge to shake himself, as though it would help to get the last drops back in. The first day was almost over. It was early morning now, and soon his alarm would go off and he would go to sleep. Many things were still strange, but he was getting used to the most basic of backwards activities. His body backed out of the bathroom. And he unstood onto the side of the futon. He smacked the top of the alarm to start it beeping. Then the sheets came up to cover him. The alarm stopped beeping, and he was instantly asleep. Well, the forward-moving consciousness that controlled his body had gone to sleep. 
linked to the memory unit off in Z-time, Takeshi felt the pull of a tired body, but he fought it off and remained awake. It felt good to have even this little bit of control, a glorious disorientation. No, that wasn't the word. Disable? Distraction? Disaster? Disobedience. A glorious disobedience, like the times he had stayed up past his bedtime as a child, reading old issues of Koro Koro comic, with a flashlight underneath the sheets. This would be a good moment to test his ability to manipulate the timeline. His hand was clutching the quilt. He could pull it out of existence, then bring it back. His forward-moving consciousness wouldn't notice, and even if he did, it would be nothing more than a strange dream. Takeshi focused on the wires that connected him to his memory unit. He had altered them to provide sensory information, much like the tingle he got from his surgical gloves when he worked with the Z-manipulator. He could feel the direction of the wires, as though his head had grown a tingly tail leading off in a direction that was outside of space. Using the wires as a guide, he pulled the quilt up and away from the plane of possible timelines. Only a few... metres? Minutes? Takeshi had no units of distance for the direction he pulled the quilt. The room was dark. Dark. He'd opened his eyes. Takeshi stood up and his body responded. This was not supposed to happen. He had meant to remove only the quilt, but in doing so he had pulled himself out as well. He looked down at his futon. He saw that the quilt was out of focus. Several iterations of the covers occupied overlapping sections of space, but at different times. Laura had made the quilt. She'd sewn it by hand after her miscarriage, using fabric from the baby clothes they'd bought. Each square had an origami crane. A thousand paper cranes were supposed to grant a wish, and though Laura had never said so, Takeshi thought that the quilt might have been her wish for another child. He accessed the diagnostics on his memory unit and was shocked to see how much the power reserves had dropped. He tried not to panic. He clutched the quilt tight in his hand and let his memory unit guide him back, retracing the path he'd taken to leave his timeline, back into the sleeping body he could not control. He would have to stay in the timeline and reserve his energy for saving Laura. Then, when he was far enough back, he would pull himself out of the timeline while holding some part of the machine. Months passed, and Takeshi drifted. His favourite times were when he visited Laura. She looked the same, forwards and backwards, as she slept on her hospital bed. No, Takeshi thought, slept was not the right word. Words escaped him. He could look up what he meant to think on his... on his what? There was some other part of his brain that could tell him things. A memory unit. But then he'd have to take his attention away from her, if only for a moment. His hands were in her hair, moving up from the tips towards her scalp, tangling the dark strands. Laura would hate that. He wished he could stop. Her hair had been so pretty when he'd come in. It took him several minutes to get his hands under control. Laura's hair was a mess, and he wanted to fix it, but at least he wasn't making it worse any more. Why was she still sleeping? Sleeping was not the right word. Something was wrong with him. 
He was forgetting things that were important. There was something he was supposed to do, something soon, and he couldn't remember what it was. His body started saying something. He listened. Some distant part of his brain flipped the words for him so he could understand. He was grateful. The other part of his brain was very kind, so nice to him. He was telling Laura a story. This was much better than messing up her hair. She liked stories. This one was about Green Willow, which was her favourite. It began with two willow trees, old and gnarled, growing so close together that they tangled into just one tree. There were pictures like that on her hospital walls. How strange that the story and the hospital would match. He wondered if that was on purpose, or by accident. Accident. Something had happened to Laura, and he had to save her. The samurai turned into a willow. Takeshi tried to focus. The other tree turned into a stump, with a little sapling growing out of it. Someone had cut down Green Willow's tree, Laura's tree. The story wasn't working. He was telling it wrong, but his voice kept going, swallowing more and more words. The samurai lived beside Laura's stump for a while, but then he left. Wrong, wrong, wrong. He shouldn't leave his Laura. But when the samurai left, he travelled to another place, and his Laura was there, not as a tree, but as a woman. Back at the place where the story had started, someone had uncut her stump into a tree, which made her into a woman again. He and Laura were together in the story, the samurai with his green willow. He listened to the part where the lovers were together, and then he stopped paying attention. He had heard the best part, the part where they were together and happy. This Laura, the real on the bed Laura, would wake up soon, and then they would be together and happy too. Takeshi wasn't there when Laura woke up. It didn't matter. She was awake now. He was with her in the lab, helping her make changes to her time machine. She seemed quieter than usual, not chattering away like he remembered she always did, but instead saying very few words and stopping her work frequently to kiss his cheek or put her hand on his shoulder. She was so affectionate. He liked that. She was probably being quieter because she had just woken up. She'd been asleep for a long time, and she wasn't a morning person. She asked him to push aside the energy cells. So that she could reach some components further back in the machine, he grabbed them and pulled them out of her way, pulling the machine. He was pulling a piece of the machine. This was important. Laura was awake, but maybe she wouldn't mind if he slipped off for just a moment to the other part of his brain. He rummaged around inside his head. He had been better at this before. Better at finding what he was looking for in the external memory unit. Things began to come clear. The memory unit was off along the z-axis. It had the energy to pull what he was holding off into z-time. He was holding a component from the machine. With the memory unit to guide him, Takeshi pulled his body out of the timeline. It was like sucking the consciousness out of his body with a straw, except that his consciousness stuck to his body 
and his body stuck to the energy cells, and the energy cells stuck to the wires that connected them to the time machine. His pull wasn't strong enough to bring the machine, so half the wires came with the energy cells, and half the wires stayed. They looked like the tails of sperm trailing off into nothing, like the nodes embedded in his brain. He stared down at the energy cells in his hand. They would still work, he realized, even Zed displaced. After all, his memory unit still worked. Laura was next to him, but she wasn't moving. Had she gone to sleep again? Takeshi hoped not. She slept for a long time. She should be well rested. She must still be working on the time machine. He decided. He remembered the cells in his hand. But what could he do? He wanted to throw the energy cells against the wall and smash them. They crashed against the wall. Startled, he backed away, tripping over his own feet and falling to the floor. He picked up the energy cells. They weren't damaged by the impact with the wall. They were very sturdy, but he could disconnect the wires. He pulled each connection loose, using his teeth to sever a connection that had gotten stuck. He had changed the timeline. He looked for the split. He could see Laura still working on the machine. She didn't move, but when he looked at her, he could see her go to sleep. Not sleeping, comatose. Laura went comatose. It happened twice: once close and once farther ahead. He could see the two timelines diverge, but they collapsed back together. The energy cells hadn't been enough; it hadn't saved her. But he knew what he had to do now. His mind was coming clearer. He would make other changes, as many changes as it took to save his Laura. Nothing worked. Takeshi had taken everything he could lay his hands on, and no matter what he changed, he couldn't create a timeline where Laura didn't go to sleep. He had to save her, not from the sleeping, but from something far worse—something he didn't understand any more. He felt like there wasn't much time, and his memory unit was running out of power. He wished he remembered how the memory unit worked well enough to attach the energy cells he'd taken from Laura's time machine. If he could find them, he was losing things, losing everything. Everything but Laura. He waited for her on a bench beside their favourite canal in Gion. The water was lined on both sides with willow trees, and it was their favourite place for walks. In a gap between the branches, Takeshi could see herons regurgitating fish and releasing them into the canal. Laura came towards him backwards, without looking. But somehow knowing just where to find him, the tips of her toes peeked out from under the hem of her skirt as she spun to face him. No one on the path noticed it except for him. If he could move his mouth, he would have smiled. He had forgotten how much she liked to walk barefoot. Takeshi told Laura that he would stay here a bit and watch the herons fishing. She said she had to go back to the lab, which meant that she had come from there. He unsat from his bench. And they held hands and walked backwards along the path next to the canal. He listened to her voice, soft and sweet, and since it seemed like this was a particularly nice moment, he got the other part of his brain to flip the words so he could pay better attention to his Laura. You have to live with an open heart, so that when something unexpected and wonderful happens, you notice," she said. 
Sometimes the best science comes from the unexpected results. Takeshi was disappointed. He'd thought, from the tone of her voice, that she was saying something more romantic. My best science comes from carefully controlled experiments. You can't always plan and predict and study. They were so different, he and Laura. He liked to plan and predict and study. He'd had a plan before to come back and save her. He frowned. The plan wasn't working. No matter what he did, he couldn't save her, because she was so determined to go to sleep. They kept talking, but Takeshi stopped listening. Reconstructing the conversation was too much work. Laura twirled around, dancing for a moment by herself before spinning into his arms so they could dance together. Other people smiled as they passed. Laura was spinning, trapped in this dance, looping round and round. He held her close, feeling the warmth of her body against his. He held her. That was it. That was how he could save her. He pulled himself along the invisible wires that stretched out into the z-axis of time, and he pulled her with him. Everything was still. People walking on the path beside them froze mid-step. And the willow branches stopped rustling in the wind. Laura leaned against his shoulder, her hand still clasped in his. Laura, he said. She didn't answer. He panicked. What if he had brought only her body? What if her mind was lost somewhere? He pulled Laura close and squeezed her tight. She was sobbing. Sobbing. It was okay. She was here, and he could comfort her. She pulled away just far enough to look at him. Her eyes were wide and frightened and filled with tears. Takeshi, she said. Takeshi. Her body rocked forwards and back. A light sway on her feet that pulled her towards his chest and then back against the support of his arms. I'm here. It's okay, he said. You aren't trapped any more. We're outside of time now. He waved his hand, unable to explain. He'd known how this had worked once, and so had she, but thinking about it now only made him confused. At least Laura wasn't sleeping; she knew his name, and he could hold her. You have to live with an open heart, she said. They were the same words she'd said a moment ago. Maybe the words in her loop were the only words she remembered now. Still, they were the right words. Takeshi protected himself by planning, by thinking, by keeping his heart behind high walls. But he had let down his guard for this unpredictable woman who danced beneath the willows. Laura leaned against his shoulder and let him stroke her hair. He kissed her forehead, then kissed the crow's feet at the corners of her eyes. He slipped his hand under the back of her shirt. And she pulled away, her eyes darting to the people standing frozen around them on the path. They couldn't see anything, but there was no harm in hiding. He led Laura to one of the willow trees, and they slipped between branches that hung down like a stone curtain. There were no other people here. There was only sunlight, filtered through delicate green leaves, and the static ripples of the canal, water frozen in time. Better. He asked. She nodded. He pulled her shirt over her head and cast it aside, 
then threw his own onto the ground beside it. She knelt and smoothed them flat, then added all the rest of their clothes to make a soft little nest beneath the branches. They lay down together and tangled into each other, like the willow trees in her favourite story, so close that they were one. Takeshi held her close when they were finished and pulled along his wires, taking them further out than he had ever gone before. They moved beyond his memory unit, and for a moment they saw it, a little metal box with wires that trailed up into his head. Their momentum carried them onward, and he made no move to stop. The tree above them was a sapling, and a tree and a rotting log all at once, and every drop of water in the canal was a cloud, and a raindrop and an ocean. Something snapped at the back of his head, and something went missing, something that had been a part of him for a long time. But Laura was pressed up against his chest, smiling as she watched all the wonders of the world unfolding. There was nothing missing. Everything was here and now, in this moment that encompassed all of time. They drifted, further and further. Takeshi saw all the timelines, where Laura went to sleep and never woke up. He couldn't save them, those infinite Lauras. But he had saved one. His one Laura. Everything that was and would be, and everything that wasn't but could be. It all stretched out below them as though they looked upon the world from very far away. But they hadn't moved, and the willow branches still covered them. They saw the universe in every willow leaf, and they fell, tangled together, beyond the reach of time. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Caroline. Caroline, thank you so much. What a story. It originally appeared in Interzone, and Interzone has just pushing out some great, great stories there. Fantastic. Caroline, thank you so much. And Catherine, what a little voice, man. Mind, it's all to do with the, you know, the, the, the audio engineer. Uh, mm, yes, I know who we're talking about. Oh, we're talking about him, eh? The man in the back there. <laughs> Say hello to Jeremy for us. <laughs> Now, I've got some important news to kind of, you know, give out there. So, no, t- <clears throat> take note there. Yes. So, got to set out my stall, you know, for 2016. Just a damn sure these show, this show and the other ones go ahead and keep on running. Yes, we're on about funding here. I've started a Patreon page. Just so it's like you can see it's there and, you know, you can actually, if you go over to it, you can see what all. Do you know what I mean? I put all the kind of pictures up there. And there's a lovely one from when we were at Worldcon. There was a bunch of work and went to Worldcon in London. And that one's up there as well. Now, this is a bit strange because, yes, I've, I do get people kind of, you know, supporting the show our, with our own kind of, you know, monthly donations. And, oh my God, don't take them away because this just would bang. But it's for, you know, it's for everyone out there who's... Just coming to the show new or, you know, has, has been around for a while and hasn't, you know, it, it's them ones. It's been around for a while. You know, how are you? You've, we're up to 411 shows and you haven't donated or you haven't, you know, Patreon now is the way to go. And it's obviously to bring in, you know, the, the Tales to Terrify listeners there and far, far, what, what do you call it? <laughs> Far-fetched fables. I made the bloody name up, man. I should be able to remember it. 
So it's to do that. And I'll put a link on, and hopefully Josh is going to get the kind of, you know, the nice big logo there so you can kind of pop straight over. Just in Google, if you want to do, just type in District of Wonders Patreon, and it'll take you to that page. And like I say, it's just need to kind of start thinking now. I know this is kind of early, but just to make sure everything's going in place so we kind of, you know, we've got the store set and we can survive the year. That's all that I'm after, to kind of keep it going. Do you know what I mean? And but the nice thing is, and this is the way you kind of you know it's all kind of cleverly done on Patreon. You can kind of have like stages, so we get to a certain amount. Let's have a look what that is. I've got to actually pop to the page. You get to three hundred dollars is toy money. Do you know what I mean? Pounds, shilling, pence, man. For God's sake, we're, we're in dollars. You get to that. You keep the shows running. Do you know what I mean? Three hundred dollars. I'll keep the shows running. If we get up to £850, <laughs> we actually, this is, and this will be a first, do you know what I mean? We'll commission a story each month, or one of the one of the shows each month will commission a story. So if we get that kind of 850 mark, then we one of the shows, you know, Tales to Terrify, Farfetch'd, or Starship, we'll take it in turns, and we'll kind of buy a story, pay a writer to write a story. If we get, and this is this is it, if we get... To 1,500, then Starship Sova will go and pay every story that we get on the show, pay every writer. Now, it's always been like a kind of free model, but the the way Patreon's kind of set up there now, it's great. And my God, if we get 1,500 quid, dollars, it's, you know what I mean, we will kind of pay writers, and that will be staggering. Do you know what I mean? And especially, this is the kind of neat thing, it's 2016. This is this will be our tenth year, and what an honour it would be if we could give back to the community. You know, ten years we've kind of we've been there. You know, yes, supporting the, the writers and kind of you know getting the names out, but to kind of now take that a one step further and kind of pay writers would just be, man, it would it, it would crack us up to be quite honest. It'd be tears in my eyes for bloody weeks. If right, <laughs> if. If we get, now these are kind of, you know what I mean, figures, but if we do get, because I've seen, you know, there's, there's some Patreon pages, if we get, that was for 1,500 for the P.O.L. writers, if we get to $1,950, then I will pay the staff. <laughs> I don't tell steady tone, I'm getting a bit dizzy there. If we get to 2,500, then I'm quitting my job, I swear to God, that's it, I'm out of there, I am out of there. Oh, man, we're on industrial action at the minute. That was one of the kind of things I was mentioning a few weeks ago. And it's just, man, do you know what I mean? It's a horrible atmosphere in there. It's, you know, you've got kind of friends. Out, oh, man. And I just want to do this, man. Do you know what I mean? This is what I love. But that's like you say, if we get to that kind of figure, that would be, you know, fantastic. But 1,950, you know, everyone who's on, the District of Wonders. Oh, there's, there's the first one coming. I don't know if anyone heard that. But if you go onto the Patreon page, you'll see all of the fear. I'm gonna now. I'm gonna add up. Wait on. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, fourteen. There's actually fourteen of were there. Do you know what I mean? And God rest his soul. I've got a picture of Larry up there as well. You know, because we've got the tales to terrify his staff. And, you know, he's still there in with thoughts as well. So that is it. You know, pop over to the kind of Patreon page. You know, if you've been with this and listened to this for years, you know what I mean? Get, come on, 
get over there and get that sorted. There's only, I mean, we're doing the donations that kind of next night. A dollar. God, are we in a, do- a dollar? What's that? What is that? To be quite honest, I think it's about 50 pence. Do you know what I mean? There's a two ninety nine one, there's a five pound one, and there's a ten pound one, and I've put a thirty pound one there. Come on, there must be some out there. Like thirty dollars, man. What's you know what I mean? Twenty quid, twenty five quid. But it would be fantastic. So this is how you know what I mean. This is how with other kind. Of, I've got to get other revenues going. This is how we're going to kind of hopefully support you know District of Wonders, Starships over Tales to Terrify, and. And the you know far-fetched fables that would be fantastic. I should remember it of all of all days to day because we've got Nicola on who's actually doing the narration. Do you know what I mean? So <laughs> you think I remember? But there you go. Please think about it. You know, support with shows. Come over and actually just have a look at it. Do you know what I mean? You can see Amy and Diane there, and you can see Catherine's husband Jeremy's on that photograph as well, smiling away there. So. <laughs> The audio engineer. <laughs> right then, I'm going to play now an interview with carried out with Matt Novak. Now, Matt Novak is a reporter, and I'll put a link on to Matt's site as well, so you can go over there and say hello. But I'd, I noticed Matt had this article, and he wrote it about the Hilton Hotel. Uh, you know, like Hilton Hotel putting in the kind of 50s, wanting to put a hotel on the moon, which was just fantastic. You know what I mean? Just what I love, you know what I mean? This kind of 50s, 60s vibe feel, you know, this kind of exciting exploration. And then there's a hotel company wanting to get a hotel on the moon. Do you know what I mean? Matt, it's, listen, it's lovely to have you on and actually to talk about this topic as well, because you wrote this article about the Hilton Hotel chain <laughs> putting a hotel on the moon. Now, <laughs> In on in your article, in, you said in 1958 there was this kind of Hilton had this kind of special announcement or a special event to announce it. Now, was this a kind of a real event to kind of actually, you know, mention that they're going to have a hotel on the moon? Well, the 1958 event was uh, actually uh, an interesting sort of stage show that they put on uh, at a Hilton in Chicago. Uh, it was. The Conrad Hilton Hotel in Chicago was, you know, one of the most prestigious in in that city at the time. And uh, they put on this huge stage show. And apparently one of the uh, big reveals at the end was uh, the Hilton Hotel at the Moon. So you'd have all of these tutu wearing girls, you know, dancing and then uh, the big, big uh finale if you will was uh that there would be hotels on the moon um and and i've just been fascinated by this idea of uh hotels on the moon for such a long time because you know of course in studying past visions of the future this has been a promise for much longer than we've had space travel itself we've we've in, you know, imagined that we'd be able to, to vacation on distant planets. And of course the moon would be first. Um, but we haven't quite gotten there yet. Unfortunately, you mentioned what was great. You mentioned like that there was a certain reporter at this event. And do you think maybe, you know, it's come from that, that he got carried away and kind of, you know, did this kind of big announcement and then, you know, it, it took off from there possibly. Possibly, you know, w- what's interesting is that, um, Mad Men, the show Mad Men, a few years back, did their own take on 
uh, Conrad Hilton, the founder of the Hilton chain. Uh, they brought him into the series as a character. Uh, apparently, you know, of course, the character is very little like his real life counterpart. Um, but there was this uh, link to some actual ideas that they had for an advertising campaign about putting a Hilton on the moon. Um, so when, you know, I, I saw that and I knew of this sort of backstory of, of some actual promotions that Hilton did uh, in the 60s, uh, it's interesting to see, you know, I just started to dig into it and contacted uh, someone at the University of Houston who has uh, the archive for the Hiltons. Um, and he just told me about how there really was this earnest belief that within some of their lifetimes that they would see a hotel on the moon. And it was apparently Conrad Hilton, the founder's son, uh, Baron Hilton, uh, who really was the evangelist for this. It was, uh, you know, he was a, uh, it was less in Mad Men. It's Conrad Hilton, the founder who really wants to encourage this idea in his advertising. But there was, Apparently, you know, this son who really earnestly believed uh, that they would have a hotel on the moon within his lifetime. And and you see this pop up in other um, popular culture uh, of the 60s, of course, with uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, um, the Jetsons. You see these hotels on the moon or at least even just alluded to. Um, and it's pretty interesting. It's I just gets you just creating. Why has it then? Because it is. It's one of these things. This kind of idea. Why do you think it's lasted? You know, in the public imagination so long. Do you know, and not getting the yeah brushed off a little bit as fantasy, but it's still a yearning we've got. Yeah, I think it's much to do with the fact that we're. This is just you know I'm speaking for myself here. I think that the world has gotten so small and um, homogenized that, that people get frustrated with uh, and have been frustrated that they're not seeing something that they've never seen before. I, I had this experience quite frankly uh, recently in Brighton <laughs> when I was visiting Brighton I'm in L.A. Um, and I was speaking at a conference in Brighton and was just kind of depressed to see the Urban Outfitters and the Gap. And like it wasn't a shock. And that's what was kind of depressing about it is that the world is so much of the world is is similar in so many ways that when you travel and you see the mcdonald's and the you know kentucky fried chicken it's it's just it's you you want you want to go someplace exotic um and there's nothing more exotic than the moon <laughs> or mars i think for for me you know it's that kind of it's that 50s you know that kind of cutesy kind of style and everything you know and so naive at the time as well you know now it's kind of politics and money and things that's kind of even hard to get off the ground but from that 50s point of view it's got this kind of almost romantic feel to it do you feel that as well for sure i think that there's definitely but i think we can also fall into the trap of sort of 
romanticizing that era. I think there really was, you know, um, a, a sort of, you know, today we think of, uh, the politics of space exploration and financing for it, um, as very hard nosed and difficult. And, but I would argue that it's always been that way. I think that because, um, you know, so many generations, when you're a kid, you know, when I grew up, in the eighties and nineties, you know, I had a different vision of that period. And I think that a lot of baby boomers grew up in the fifties and sixties, um, with, with that vision of the future through a child's eyes. But there really was a, a very similar sort of political backdoor dealing, um, element to space exploration. And it was, you know, quite frankly, it was political. I mean, why don't we have a hotel on the moon? Well, uh, because you can't bomb Moscow from the moon. <laughs> like, like, honestly, like it's, it's, it's the reason we, we launched rock, you know, the Americans launched rockets into space was to prove that they could hit Russia. I mean, it was, it was the space age, was was born on the back of uh, the Cold War, and we got a lot of amazing things out of it. But it was also, for many of the people involved, a rather cynical um, exploration of science that uh, was just about uh, dropping bombs. So, you know, I think that when we sort of pull ourselves back to earth and, and uh, you know, it, we can get a little in the weeds and, and a little depressed about what it takes to get people, you know, excited about these sorts of, as you say, more naive visions of the future. But I, I think that the, the seriousness has always been there. It's just depending sort of how old you were when you were first exposed to it and, and, and how, how you may approach the the topic, you know, I, I would love to vacation on the moon. Am I optimistic that that's going to happen within my lifetime? I'm not so sure. What I'll tell you what I'm interested in then, Matt, you know, because yeah, you know, in the, in this kind of from 1958, it was kicked off and you see it was his son, this Baron, is that right? But surely has there been like other, say, directors of the Hilton Group have carried this on? Because it's it, like, say, it's it's still you know 2015 going strong, and is, was there other people that kind of took up the the mantle and you know carried it forward in the chain of Hilton? Yeah, um, again, more in a sort of advertising space. You know, it, it, it's there have been other people, um, you know, that that have said that it it wasn't even meant to be taken seriously. Um, the, the Hilton sort of promises to go to space, but I, I don't know that I believe that. I think that, that there were a lot of people who earnestly believed that, you know, the, the techno utopian visions, of the future, which I would classify as flying cars and jet packs and meal pills and, and, uh, hoverboards, um, <laughs> This being, you know, not long after Back to the Future Day, um, I think that there are a lot of people who still, you know, have have visions of of hotels on the moon, and I would certainly welcome them. They they just, 
I think I think you hit it on the head when you said there there was a more naive sensibility in the 1950s and 60s. And again, I think you can credit a lot of that can be put on the 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 fact that there was just this huge generation of kids who were exposed to so much media um, that represented these techno utopian visions of the future, like a hotel on the moon or like a flying car um, that got people really excited and, and has had an effect on our world today. I mean, would you rather have a hotel on the moon or the internet? I mean, arguably the internet is, uh, you know, one of the most revolutionary things to be invented of ever, and it w- will continue to evolve and be something completely different ten years from now, um, in in form and factor. But I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with continuing to strive for the moon, and it's just a matter of sort of where's the money going to come from, and who's going to actually. Uh, see an incentive to put a hotel on the moon. Um, again, the the Cold War was sort of a uh, an impetus for getting us up there, um, but we stopped going. <laughs> we stopped going back because we didn't need to prove that our rockets could reach the Soviet Union anymore. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what's going to get us up there, and and a lot of people put you know their their uh, eggs in the private space industry basket, and there's something to be said for that. But at the end of the day, a lot of the private space industry is uh, such as SpaceX. You know, I applaud their efforts, but you know they're little more than a contractor for. NASA, uh, in a lot of ways, you know, they're, they're a subcontractor. So it's not like they have their own financial incentive. If NASA or AT&T went away, um, to, to be, uh, blasting rockets into space. So, um, again, that's, that's kind of depressing to think about, but it's the reality. Well, I tell you when you, you know, you talk about this kind of Hilton group though, and, Am I right from your article that they've actually have put money into a couple of projects? Yeah, they had talked about that. I I'm I haven't kept up with that. You know, the article originally ran a, a few years ago, and I I haven't actually uh, followed up with sort of what they've been doing today. Um, but but yeah, I mean, there, there was certainly talk of of. Uh, Hilton wanting to be the first on the moon. And, you know, there was, there was a British architect, I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but, um, he, he was ready to go. He he was, he he was, uh, he, he wanted to, to put the Hilton on the moon. And, uh, but, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure that that's going to happen within my lifetime. Well, Matt Lowe, there is a key, haven't you? There is a Hotel Luna key for your rooms. Tell, tell us about that because there's even a picture of this key that they, they did for the, kind of the, or the PR or the event. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's, it's, <laughs> it's great advertising. This, this key is fantastic. I got it uh, you know, from the, the uh, University of Houston archives where they have the uh, Conrad Hilton College, and they house all the papers, and they they had this key that they 
it's it's just a fantastic looking key and ironically it looks like um it, it it looks so much like a key that i actually have for a door uh in my apartment um so at least i guess part of that came true but it's it's yeah it, it says lunar hilton on it and it's um it's a space age key that was was sent you know given out as a promotional tool uh to people uh to visitors to actual earthbound or <laughs> earthbound uh actual uh, let's see i'm getting the language is slipping in um i am imagining there's already hilton on the moon uh the, the key was given to uh people who stayed in hilton hotels and it was just sort of a fun promotion uh and and of course that's sort of where we get our ideas about what's possible and what we're striving for you know and we see all these advertising i mean take a look at the advertising we've seen for back to the future with the end of you know not the anniversary but well yes the anniversary of the first movie earlier uh, but the um, Back to the Future date, October twenty first, twenty fifteen. Um, the uh, every brand and their brother was attaching themselves to Back to the Future because it was an optimistic vision of the future. It was it was flying cars and hoverboards and very cool stuff. And brands love to do that. You know, there's there's a sort of um, I wouldn't say cynical, but just very, you know, smart branding uh, of people attaching themselves to things like one day you're going to have a hotel on the moon. You know, I saw tweets (laughs) on Back to the Future Day from everyone from Charmin toilet paper to uh uh olive garden uh italian restaurants were were sending out tweets promoting back to the future day what what is what is uh italian restaurant chain have to do with back to the future absolutely nothing but everyone wants to be attached to it so i think in a lot of ways the lunar hilton promotions uh and that key included uh which is a very cool looking promo uh key I'd, I'd love to, to have one for my collection i've got quite a collection of, of weird uh, retro futuristic stuff but um yeah the that i think it's has a lot to do with brands attaching themselves to the these optimistic futures and and it back to the future quite frankly it was you know back to the future too was a rare utopian vision of the future that wasn't uh, didn't have some awful twist. The awful twist, I guess, is that not a lot's going to change <laughs> for um, a lot of people socially, but technologically speaking, at least, we'd have flying cars and hoverboards. I mean, just the thought though, as well, Matt, you know, if it was ever, ever possible, you know, and Hilton gets this, the, the hotel on the moon, like, you know, that PR would just explode. You know? Oh, of course. <laughs> Of course, that would be a, I mean, can you imagine what uh, a hotel on the moon would, would uh, 
do for the well, for even the, even when you said the likes of like the company that supplies the toilet paper, you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh God, I can't even imagine every other brand in the entire world trying to attach themselves to the hotel on the moon. Matt, it was honestly, it was a great ugly roast. You know what I mean? Just thank you so much for coming on and kind of sharing it. It was it was lovely. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Matt. Matt, what can I say? A big thank you, sir, for coming on Starship Zora and, you know, letting me, letting me delve into a kind of a world that I didn't know about. You know what I mean? A kind of the corporate, where, where, where the corporate industry wants to go. <laughs> I'll put, like I say, I'll put a link on the Matt, Matt, you know, and that article. Thank you so much for, for doing that. Brilliant. So, next up is another main fiction, and it is Relic by Trisha Glock. I'll give you a little heads up about Trisha. Trisha Glock is the pen name of a person who works too many jobs and has far too little time to write as much as she would. She likes her cat more than her computer, which is unfortunate, and her family more than a cat, which is... <laughs> Let's so. She wrote this because Starship Sova has accompanied her through many difficult hours and has always made her heart sing. Trisha, thank you so much. What kind words, thank you so much. Now, this story is narrated by Nicola Seaton Clark. Nicola lives in the wilds of almost Eastern Europe with a long suffering husband. Ah, he's suffering. He knows where his bread's buttered. I tell you what. <laughs> Phenomenal children and grumpy cat. Trained as an actress and singer, she has worked in the entertainment for over 20 years and currently splits her time between writing speculative fiction, helping her husband run the voiceover company Ofstima and voicing everything from commercials and documentaries to public transport announcements. But as well as that, Nicola is the voice of Farfetch'd Fables. And we need support. Did I tell you about my Patreon page? There you go. Oh, that's straight in there, man. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present Relic by Trisha N. Glock. She'd been working in a field when she was discovered, just quietly walking down the rows of Kalten, picking each pendulous seed pod and putting it in the hopper, singing an old cradle song she'd heard one of the other nameless singing to its buglet that morning. Suddenly there'd been a buzzing, which hurt her ears, and then pressure like a fist slamming down onto her back, pinning her to the warm, loamy earth. She trembled, both hearts beating wildly, waiting for the named from the hovercraft to speak. What he said shocked and pleased her only slightly less than the beautiful timbre of his voice. She'd never heard a more liquidly smooth vocal stream, hardly a consonant to be heard, so skillfully did he transition his thoughts. She was still wondering at how he did it, when the content of his speech penetrated her consciousness. What he said changed her life forever. He even used his own carapace to help lever her into the hovercraft, which whisked her off to her new life. Once she settled in at the Institute, her days took on a whole new rhythm. No longer did she get up before the bright yellow sun had peeped over the horizon and spend the long day picking pods, digging over the red soil with its pink wriggling aerator worms and fresh scent. Instead, she learned to tune her vocal harmonics so finely that she could express many different thoughts on one breath, harmonising with herself and others more deftly than she had ever thought possible. She studied many different disciplines and subjects, 
soaking up knowledge like a sponge. Most importantly, she had a name now. The name assigned to her for her first life stage was short and fairly staccato, lacking complicated harmonics, but it was hers. She was no longer one of the nameless. She was now Anya, a name that paid homage to the vanished former inhabitants of this colony. Ralio Laran, the benefactor who had plucked her from the field, had chosen it for her. He was very old, his carapace wrinkled and flaking in places, and had been here from the very start, one of the first of the people to have landed here and started the colony. He was wise, funny, warm, caring, everything she had missed since her parent had passed, still nameless, into the nothing. One warm summer day, she had just finished her classes and was enjoying a high-pressure shower in her quarters, humming wordlessly along to the changing tones of the jets as they hit different parts of her back, when she heard the entrance chime twice. Quickly, she fluted the shut-off tone and turned, rattling her leg joints to shed water. Rally Olaran stood just inside the entrance to her quarters, holding a strange thing in his front manipulator. It was long and flowing, coloured a pale peachy pink, and it moved sinuously as he waved it in front of her. Revered master, she trilled, shading her tone with a major key of welcome. How can I serve you this mellifluous day? Much joy to you this day, my student, he crooned. I would like to show you something very close to my heart. Would you be so amiable as to enfold yourself in this garment? Garment, master? Is that what you are holding? The sound is unfamiliar to me, she asked. It actually sounded harsh and guttural coming from his normally honeyed throat. Yes, garment, student. The concept is that of our alien predecessors. I thought it appropriate that we should clothe ourselves, as the former inhabitants of this planet did when we go to visit the new museum today. As he spoke, he turned his carapace slightly, and she saw that he wore a similar object over his back, which rippled and shifted with his movement. Bemused but obedient, Anya complied with his request. It was awkward and fiddly, but with his help she managed to get the garment arranged on her back to his satisfaction, and as she walked around it swished in an interesting, sinuous way. Never one to waste words, her master set off towards the middle of the compound, Anya trailing him at a respectful two paces. As they ambled along, she thought about the museum that had been Rally Olaran's pet project since before she had been discovered. Ever since her people had found this planet, green, verdant, yet lacking higher life forms, archaeologists and sociologists had been trying to formulate theories as to why the native dominant species had died out. They had undoubtedly been intelligent, as complicated city ruins had been found with obvious evidence of purposeful design. Various bits and pieces of quite complicated technology had been discovered, although none of it had been working. Even traces of nuclear power generation facilities were also much in evidence, although why any sentient species would be so incautious as to use nuclear fission as a source of fuel was beyond her meagre understanding of the technology. Ralio Laran was an academic of great renown. Originally the leader of the colony, he had retired from active duty when he felt that the colony was well established and could function without his guidance. He had then turned his considerable intellect to the cultural education and enrichment of his people, an aspect of their culture that had not been top priority for the first few decades of the settlement. He had started the Institute to find and train talented singers, wordsmiths and scientists, and the museum dedicated to the former owners of the planet 
was his latest project. Revered master, if I may make a query, she said after a while. Of course, child, what would you ask? He answered easily. The day set aside for the opening of the museum is almost one-tenth year hence. Why is it that you and I are visiting there today? Anya was particularly proud of her last statement, as she managed to combine an interrogative with a fluting tone normally used to compliment or flatter, although without any contextual notes. Tricky. A good question, Buglet. A good question indeed. His vibrato sounded amused, yet not mocking. As you know, we have found one or two pieces of alien technology which seem to have been data storage devices. Strange and awkward-looking things, requiring many other parts to make them function. Anya crooned an affirmative, lightly overlaid with an undertone of curiosity. We've never been able to retrieve any of the data on these devices, as we simply do not have the equipment to do so. Her master sounded frustrated when he spoke of this, his modulation uneven and rushed. He paused at an ornamental garden by the roadside to rest, indicating that she should rest also. The air was sweet and scented with a native plant, slightly astringent, yet pleasing to the tongue, and behind them a fountain designed by a student of the Institute tinkled in three different keys. But now, Buglet, something has changed, he began when he had got his breath back. He seemed subdued, and yet she heard a vibrato of excitement on the edge of his tone. She strained her rearward eyes at him, but the brightness of the noon sun made her squint, made it difficult to make out any details of his carapace. He took a deep breath and continued. We have found a device, different from any we have found before. It contains data which we have been able to extract. Master, this is very exciting news, she fluted. "'curiosity filling her. "'What is the nature of the data? "'Does it teach us anything about their science, "'their logic patterns, their culture?' "'More questions bubbled up to the surface of her mind, "'but her master shushed her with a gentle susurration, "'barely even a melody. "'We don't know yet, Anya. "'We just don't know. "'That's why we're going to the museum today. "'Mineral has sent me word that he has managed "'to convert some of the data into a form "'that is comprehensible to us.' It took the dear soul almost a tenth year just to work out how to replenish the device's power supply. Now he is finally ready to let me see it. I must admit to being just the slightest bit nervous. Nervous, master? exclaimed Anya. But why? Surely this is exciting for you. For so long you have studied what little we know of these creatures. Why, you were the one who discovered the temperature differential that must have killed them off. I know, child, I know, but... What if the data is useless? What if it shows them to be different from what we theorized? What if... There were dissonances in his melody that shocked her deeply. Master, stop! You mustn't think like this! Her temerity at interrupting his song so abruptly seemed unimportant at that moment. All we can do is go and see what we will see. Truth? He smiled at her paraphrasing of one of his favorite aphorisms. Truth, child, he sighed. Let us go and see what we can see. With that, he levered himself up off the bench and set off through the garden towards the partly constructed museum building. Menorol straightened up from the bench he was crouched over, his side plates rasping atonally as they slid back into his carapace grooves. His frontal eyes twinkled at the old leader and his protégé as they stepped through the door of his laboratory. 
He warbled a warm greeting to Raliolaran, who graciously ignored the flat notes, although Anya only just managed to suppress her wince. The first time she had been discourteous enough to do so in the old scientist's presence, Raliolaran had come as close as he ever had to being angry with her. The lecture he had given her about the different talents of different people still rang in her ears late at night sometimes, whenever she felt herself creeping towards musical snobbery. Her shame was still strong. Menorol's parent had been a great singer, a shining star amongst people who were almost all extremely gifted, even the nameless. Apparently his parent had pressured him to change to the male stage of his life much earlier than usual, because, with his lack of musical ability, she felt he would be nothing but a disgrace to her. The fact that Mineral had come into his own and excelled in the scientific arena never seemed to assuage her hurt feelings, and she herself hadn't changed to the male stage until right near the end of her life, and then he had refused to contribute his essence to the generation of another child. The story was well known, and was often held up to Buglets as an example of how selfishness can impact upon the welfare of the entire race. All of this raced through her head as she bowed low and greeted Minerol with respect. Balio, my friend, you will be so excited at what I have to show you, began the little man with enthusiasm. His voice cracked and he continued blithely. It is so much more than you and I have theorized. Come, come this way. He led the way into a side office, where comfortable chairs and refreshments were arranged around a viewing tank. I asked my housekeeper, dear lady, to set this up for us. My students all have orders not to disturb us at all. He backed into the room and closed the door behind them, bustling around them, plates clacking and voice squeaking off key at every other step. Now, as you know, Anya, I ask that my old friend bring you here today because of your unique talents. The device itself is unknown to you both, so without further ado, let me, um... Learned one, she interrupted a person of rank for the second time that day. I beg your indulgence, but I know nothing of what you refer to. No doubt my master has brought me here for a specific purpose, which I will not presume to question, but... And here she hesitated, shocked at her own forwardness. But might I ask to see the device? Such artifacts are highly intriguing to me, and I would really love to see the thing itself. What? Balio, have you not shown this buglet the pictures of the device, not apprised her at all? Mineral sounded confused. Forgive me, Meno, chuckled her master. I must confess I should have informed you more fully. I have not told our young pupil anything at all. I wanted her to bend her vast mind to this object unprejudiced, without my or your preconceived notions. Ah, I see, of course, of course. Um, would you like to see it um, in the flesh, so to speak? This last was directed at her. Oh, yes, if I may. Of course, just over here. He led her to a screened-off portion of the office, where a viewer cleared to show, lying on a bed of dust-free synth moss, a thing. It was a flattish black rectangular object, about as long as her forward headplates were wide and not very thick at all. From what she knew of the skeletal remains that she had studied in her laboratory, it was about two-thirds the size of one of the alien's upper manipulators, and their main manipulation digit would just about fit onto what looked like a flat black button on its front. She found herself studying it eagerly, trying to imagine one of the aliens handling it, using it to... to... what? This is fascinating, learned one. May I ask where you managed to find such an undamaged object? I can see no weather damage, no dust or other signs of corruption. 
I've never seen such a pristine artifact. Her register got higher and higher, her tempo climbing at the same excited rate. You see what I mean, Menor? said Raliolaran. She has already started analysing. Master? Child, be calm. It has often been discussed between us old men how unusual you are. A young female, still at the height of her artistic powers, with a voice like honeyed silk, and yet you have the inquiring instincts and the sharp intellect of one who has already changed to the male state. We find that you do not think along recognised lines of logic as we do. You... you... he seemed to struggle for words. You listen to all, you think of all, you think through all. It's... it's like a hologram, your mind. Everywhere and at a point, at one and the same time. Anya could feel her manipulators start to sweat from the unaccustomed praise being heaped on her, while at the same time her thoughts could not let go of the fascinating thing that lay before her. Thank you, Master. You do me great honour. But please, without being rude, may we continue? May I see the data that has been retrieved? Ah, of course, of course, my dear. <clears throat> Maynarol shuffled to one side awkwardly, so that she could see the data screen set into one side of the alcove that contained the device. Well, it contained various types of data file, not all as uncorrupted as we could wish. Alas, my dear, the pristine appearance is mostly that appearance. Uh, large sections of the data are badly corrupted by time and moisture, some of it irretrievably. What I have managed to extract is very interesting. Some files are purely visual in nature. Pictures, if you will. Uh, some are in the same kind of written script that they used for engraving long-term communications, or, although why they should use them here on a short-term memory device, I don't know. What is most exciting from our point of view is that I have found a file that contains sound data. Again, communication of some kind. Even, I think, what they called music. This last was said slowly and hesitantly as if the old scholar didn't want to commit himself to such a radical theory. Music, she breathed, hardly daring to believe it. She looked over at her master and was not surprised to see the unmistakable signs of great emotion in the wrinkles forming in his headplates. Music? Truly, Maino, truly music? Her master's voice trembled again with joy and excitement. What kind of music? Choral? Solo? Emotive? What? Do you think they had true speech, as we do? Ah, my friend, I do not know. As you know, I have a tin ear for these things. All I can say is that it has melody, not whether that melody is any good. I doubt it, Master. She spoke without thinking. My study of their anatomy, extrapolated from the skeletal remains we have, show that these creatures had only two air sacs, both in the same basic area of their bodies. The only possible conclusion is that they had only one larynx, maximum two, no one could make true speech with only two voice boxes. Perhaps their form of communication was only written or telepathic, or maybe they had some primitive form of single-note speech, as our infants do before the formation of the auxiliary air sacs and larynxes, but no more than that, I fear. She looked at the two scholars, abashed at her daring. Sorry, master. Nonsense, he said softly. That's exactly why I asked you to accompany me here today. Can we see and hear these data files, Meno? Of course, of course. That was a habit of the wise scientist, using the same phrases again and again simply because they were easy for him to sing. Briefly, Anya felt pity for him, 
and guilt for feeling the pity, but it was soon swallowed up by the wondrous image that filled the viewscreen. So that's what they looked like, she whispered to herself, gazing at the blob with round, soft curves all over its body. Pink-skinned, almost like the aerator worms, they look soft like them too. I knew they didn't have a proper exoskeleton, just no place to anchor it. Hang on, what's this? A new picture had come onto the screen, which showed an alien with what looked like an exoskeleton. Then she took a better look and saw that it fitted wrongly. Suddenly what she was seeing made sense, and she realized that the creature had actually attached pieces of a hard substance to its body, almost like a prosthetic exoskeleton. She could see straps, which seemed to go over another of the strange garments that she and her master were wearing. At the bottom and the top of the image was the same script that they were already familiar with, as well as another script. Maybe it was a picture, she couldn't be sure. One of the top scripts looked familiar, but she couldn't remember from where. They had fur on their heads, front and top. I knew they were warm-blooded, like those tree-dwellers we found on the fourth continent. Do you remember, Master? She continued enthusiastically, almost double-noting in her haste to say everything that was occurring to her. I can't get a really good look at the main manipulator. It seems to be covered by the, the fake exoskeleton, but it seems to be holding a stick of some kind. Wait, go back to that image. Please, she added, remembering her manners. Alas, my dear, this is a slideshow that I put together for you and Raliolaran. We can't really go back, but I will give you both copies of all the raw data before you leave. I would love you to give me an analysis before the opening of the museum. For now, just enjoy the images as they come. So she did, still not quite mollified by the scientist's conciliatory tune, which she carried off without too many flat notes. She sat and watched image after image, many of them jumbled and oddly out of focus, very few of which she felt she would ever understand. After that came the text documents, which were again very exciting, but flashed past too fast for her to examine closely. Radio Laran chuckled at her eagerness and counselled her to be patient. We are a very long-lived species, Anya, even the unnamed. There will be plenty of time for you to decode these writings. No doubt you will be able to tell us much about their culture and nature, and sooner than you think, too. She acquiesced and continued watching the images. At last, Minarol shuffled his rear sets of legs and spoke. I, uh, I have kept the best for last, he trilled with amusement. This is the image that goes together with the sound file. What filled the screen made her gasp, and for once left her speechless. What she was seeing could only be one thing. It was... A spaceship. They had built a spaceship. Excitement flooded her even as she started criticising their design. So blocky, so awkward, no rings at all. Now, under all the suns of Aliorula, how did they make it spin? They couldn't have had any artificial grav at all. Well, I suppose with those manipulators of theirs and the lack of an exoskeleton, it wouldn't have been so clumsy for them to travel in freefall, but still. She was amazed. As far as she could see, the ship consisted of four main parts, one long rectangle topped by three squares set at right angles to the edge of that rectangle. At each end there were oddly shaped protrusions, almost roundish, and still further out, next to these protrusions, were what were clearly rocket motors for attitude adjustments. Those must be the drives, she said, pointing at the oddly shaped things. 
The blocks must be where the living quarters were, but why such an eccentric configuration? It doesn't make sense. She studied the image further. At the bottom of the rectangle there was some script in forms that she recognised. There were three of the S-shaped letters, then the round one, the one she thought of as a winter tree bending in the wind, and finally the one shaped like a travois. At the other end of the rectangle were two more letters from the numerical set of characters, which she assumed were the ship's designation. Master, isn't it marvellous? They must have had space flight. Maybe they have a colony somewhere. She turned to Raliolaran, only to be pulled up short by his attitude of reverence. He was oblivious to her, resting on the edge of his carapace, humming a hymn of thanksgiving to the universe. She wanted to join him, but was too impatient to see more, hear more, learn more. Learned one, she said, rounding on Menarol. You said that there was a sound file. May I hear it, please? May, may we hear it? Of course, of course, Anya. I warn you, it's not very much, rather less than a thousandth of a day, replied the old one as he tapped a command into his console. No matter, no matter, dear Menoral, it is sound, music. We might even be able to understand it. Oh, this is the best thing that has ever happened to this colony. To know more about who came before us and how they helped and benefited each other on this rich and bounteous planet. This is truly a gift from the universe. The old scholar glanced uncomfortably between her and her still-crooning master. I sincerely hope so, my dear. You must forgive an old cynic, but... Sometimes things are not always what they seem. That pulled her up short. What do you mean, learned one? Oh, nothing, nothing, really, just... He seemed uncomfortable. Maybe what we find out will not be all that we have hoped. These creatures were probably very different from us. Maybe what we find out will revolt us. Mainerol's sentences were clipped and clumsy, seeming to tumble out of his air sacs without organization or harmonization of any kind. Anya looked at him and for the first time felt a rush of affection for this sincere man, who had suffered so much humiliation, and yet come out so sweet-tempered and likable. "'I'm sure that we will cope, revered teacher,' she said, including as many harmonics of respect and devotion as she could manage, despite knowing that he wouldn't hear most of them. Learning something unpalatable about the aliens might just bring us some perspective on the less salubrious parts of our own culture, don't you think?' She smiled and clacked her manipulators in a friendly fashion. Come, let us hear this music of theirs. And so he played it. The sounds were harsh, distortion warping the noises and creating reverberating feedback that grated on her ears, but she heard it clearly. An alien voice, saying words still mysterious to her, but beautiful in their promise of what was to come. Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show number 176. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Trisha. Trisha, honestly, thank you so much. It's it's lovely. It's it's really, and, and like I say, you've been through some kind of hard times, I think, at the beginning of this year as well, which was kind of pretty scary for all of us. 
And Nicola, what can I say? I fantastic. I just fantastic. Tell that husband of yours he's a he's a darling. <laughs> so that is Starship Sovas. What number was it? Four hundred. I forget. You see me, bloody four hundred eleven. Professional here, you know. Four hundred eleven. Big thank you to Caroline and to Trisha for them stories, and to Matt for that in- interview. It was just. It was actually just. That's what I'm liking about these interviews. You know, it's just getting down and, and chatting with people that I wouldn't normally chat with, and kind of and just having a laugh, you know. And I've got an idea for some some of the interviews where I'm going to kind of you know edit them a little bit as well. But I've got some great ones coming up. Jimmy O'Kane, I think we're right set now, right until, you know, after the Christmas, probably with the interviews that I've actually got already. So I'm always kind of, you know, and if you if you know anybody that's kind of out there, you know, some people have been dropping this line, oh, Tony, this person, this person. Yeah, tell us. You know what I mean? That would be fantastic. Let us know who's out there. Because I've got to, I'll tell you how I do it, actually. If you just wanted to know, I'll tell you. Because it's, it's pretty hard to find stories, man. It's like, that's what I'm doing. I'm looking for stories. But... What I do is I have an Android phone and I've got it all now set up rather quite well, rather quite, let me get my phone out. I know I'm waffling here, but I, I don't have to go to work till two o'clock. <laughs> We're on work to rule anyway, so we <laughs> go. But yes, here we go. Now listen, this is how I, I do it. I've got my phone, Android phone, and I've got a few apps in there in a little folder. And the main one where I kind of source my stories from is Flipboard which is a great one, you know, as soon as you log in, it kind of, it, it runs you through what you're interested in, and it's, you know, if you just kind of choose what you like, it comes up, you know what I mean, and just grabs feeds from everywhere, so there's that, and then once I kind of find a story, I think, oh, that's a quite a quirky one, then I go the old-fashioned way, the old-fashioned way, yes, I, I put the article, well, not this is not the old-fashioned way, I put the article, I save it straight away in a thing called Pocket, which is an app, which is just, you know, I used to kind of like Evernote. I'm, I'm getting a little bit kind of, it seems a bit kind of bloated and all over the place. But Pocket is great for, you know, you can just save it and, you know, you can go back and kind of have a look and, and read it all out. And it's, Pocket's great. Then, you know, like I say, at a later date, I'll read that article. I'll pick one, I'll read it. And I do the old-fashioned way there where it's pen and a notepad. And I write it down and that's... This is what I kind of wanted to mention. That's just bringing out a whole new kind of... I haven't done that for years, man. Honestly, years. Like, And now I'm, I'm getting a bit, little bit obsessed. And it was a great article. If you come over to my Facebook page, someone wrote an article about his kind of style with a notebook and pen. And he lives, you know, he mentions like the best ones and what he uses. And now... <laughs> I've got my notebooks now for, and I've got four of them for me writing me questions out. But now I carry one around with us every second of the day, and it's a field notes book. Oh. Oh, I haven't got it on us. <laughs> I haven't even got my pen. Where did I put that? Anyway, it's a dinky little thing, and I kind of write everything in there. So, you know, I know, again, sorry, Patreon, all my kind of ideas, you know, for that, you know, this, 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 all, everything, you know, if I had to do something, I, I put it in there. And you get three of these when you order them, these little field notes, it's called. And it, I know it's, it doesn't, but it's, it's you know, it kind of, it just fits in your back pocket. And on my left, this is where I'm waffling totally, but I've noticed it, carry me wallet, in my right side in my pocket. I've always done it. So if I put anything in my back pocket, left side, it feels a bit odd. Do you know what I mean? And 
that's how I've done it for my life. Now I put my field notebook in my left-hand side back pocket, and it's it's molding me cheeks. Yes, I can't tell it's there. So that's <laughs> right. That's enough anyway. But check. Check if you come on to Facebook, you can check out the kind of the article and what he uses. And I've got his pen as well. And his pen, just like a disposable pen, but it writes fantastic. Do you know what I mean? The ink coming out, and it's a fine one, and it's lovely. Do you know what I mean? So if you're kind of into kind of notes and taking everything like that, I don't know who that is, is that the wife? <laughs> taking you know, like notes and everything, it's just, and that's how I go on. And that's how I find my stories for these interviews now. And, and I'll kind of write up my questions on this. It's a bigger one, this notepad. But I'm getting just a thrill out of kind of writing. Do you know what I mean? My God, my handwriting is shocking. Man, that's just shocking. When when I see it, I think, <gasps> you know, in my day, kind of, it was like schoolwork, you had to get it neat and tidy. And I actually noticed my son's writings. He, God, it's even worse than mine. You know, we're kind of, now it's just all computer, but... <gasps> When I look at mine, I think, man, do you know I mean? have I just been given a pen? Like, you know, I'm an alien. Do you know what I mean? Just given a pen. So there you go. That is that is my little ramble there. And like I say, what I would mean, you know, Patreon, it's it's to help where hopefully you can kind of sort that out and look after look after her. You know what I mean? We kind of need a kind of... To pay writers in 2016 would be... God, honestly, I would have tears in my eyes. It'd be like like winning the Hugo again. Do you know what I mean? For 10 years, we've kind of... And we, we will keep on taking stories from writers. But, you know, if we can have that chance to pay them as well, man. In 2016, that would be amazing. Anyway, until then, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Sorting Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for wash. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.